everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, Naomi, and this is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are thrilled again to be joined by Robert Pondicio, one of our favorite guests. He is here to talk about a relatively new piece that he has out, but we recommend for everyone, called Getting Reading Right. Um, it appeared in commentary late last year. Robert is also a senior fellow at AEI with us. Welcome. Thanks for joining us, Robert. Thank you. Three senior fellows. That means just three old people. Yeah. Around. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Right. All right. Literally means old man. All right, Robert. So you've been writing a lot about something called the science of reading. And I think a lot of people are skeptical these days, uh, whenever you put the science of something in front of a word, um, because, you know, that implies that it's settled and, you know, we should all just get on board. But but here is actually something where there's real evidence for it. And there's good news in the world of education. So so tell us what you've been writing about and why we should be glad that people have finally accepted the science of reading. Yeah, well, well I, I always say every every good conversation about education either quickly gets to it's complicated or it's not worth having. And this is going to be another one of those it's complicated conversations. Um, so, yeah, the, 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 the so-called science of reading is um, surprisingly on the march and has been for, for, for several years now. You know, those of us who have kind of championed for, you know, for 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 decades, um, evidence based practices in the English language arts classroom have got to be scratching our heads and thinking, wow, I never thought this day would come. But here it is. Um, and we can talk about why, uh, you know, this is suddenly kind of like the the, the flavor of the moment. Um, but given given how many flavors of the moment have been on insubstantial things, it's just a lovely thing uh, that, that American education is kind of getting religion, as it were, on, on evidence-based reading instruction, particularly in, in, in the early childhood classroom. Um, so there's, you know, there, there's, this is, this is a great good thing. Uh, since you nicely invoked that commentary piece, that here's the, here's the complicated part. Here's the bot part. Um, you know, and any innovation in reading or, or in, in classroom practice at all is always an exercise, like in a child's game of telephone, you know, what, what it, it, by the time it goes from, you know, research to policy, to, to, to training, to the classroom, it can take on, you know, dimensions that you might not um, recognize. That's one. Two, it's a little bit more complicated than phonics, which is how it's being kind of, the science of reading is being portrayed in, in popular, you know, uh, accounts, just do phonics. That's, you know, that's the starting line. That's not the finish line. Um, and, and as ever, you know, the long knives are always out for, 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 you know, any, anything that goes against the grain. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of motivated thinking and reasoning in classroom practice. And there's always, you know, a roster of near-do-wells who want to undo the good work or tell you why it's not going to, not, not going to work. And, and also, you know, to be brutally blunt, uh, education has the attention span of a gnat. So, you know, if it, if it doesn't get immediate results, um, we go back to doing other stuff. Uh, so, so you know, two cheers for the science of reading, um, meaning you know, it's it's a it's a great good thing, but now comes the hard part. Now comes the implementation part. Uh, now comes, as I said in that commentary piece, convincing generations of teachers that everything that they learned about you know reading instruction is wrong, um, or at least misleading. Um, uh, so it's you know this is this is Act One. It's it's a terrific first act, but it's just Act One. So can you, for our listeners, why don't you just spend a few moments, what is it that teachers have been told around balanced literacy or 
or phonics and what is now the emerging truth, which many folks like Edie Hirsch and others have been saying for many, many years, but it's being rediscovered. So just just for our listeners, just contrast, yeah, I, I, contrast sure. the two. Thanks, Ian. Yeah, in, in that commentary piece, I, I detail um, at, at some length the kind of goofy ways I was taught to teach, uh, you know, reading to my struggling fifth graders. You know, j- just for the background of our audience, I, I was, you know, I came to education as a second career. I taught fifth grade, uh, not far from the school that you founded, Ian, in the South Bronx at PS two seventy seven, which, you know, for context. Um, district seven, the South Bronx was and still is, I believe, the lowest scoring school district in the behemoth that is the New York City Department yes. of Education. It has competitors now, but yeah, 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 exactly. It, it's it's performing as badly, and it has yeah, competitors. It, that, that's right. Yes, um, but my school was literally the lowest scoring school in that district. So I taught fifth grade for five years at, at what is, by definition, you know, the lowest of the low in in New York City. And because I was a second career teacher, I didn't start teaching until I was nearly 40. You know, I had not set foot in an elementary school since I'd been in, a, in an elementary school student. And and one of my earliest impressions was, wow, um, this is not how I remember teaching reading or learning to read. On the other hand, I don't remember any explicit reading instruction whatsoever. Um, you know, you, you first, you, the, the old cliche seemed true in my case. First, you learn to read, then you read to learn. But reading instruction, you know, in my classroom in the South Bronx never stopped. Um, and, and it took on this kind of odd dimension. Um, you know, this was a my classroom was a demonstration classroom for Lucy Calkins' Teachers College Reading and Writing Project, which was kind of like the big bad guy of Emily Hanford's uh, recent work, which I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, the podcast that she did about reading, which kind of set all of this science of reading um, in motion. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I, we were taught, it was all reading strategies. It was all, you know, as, as I described in the piece, I didn't really teach reading. I sold it. You know, in other words, the theory behind it was that, look, you just got to make kids fall in love with reading by putting books in their hand that they're excited to read, that's about them, their interests, et cetera. Um, and, and, and that will be enough to turn them into great readers, you know, just be in, you know, selling them on, on the excitement of reading as opposed to, um, phonics as opposed to fluency as opposed to phonemic awareness as you know opposed to you know explicit vocabulary instruction and, and knowledge knowledge boring, exactly background knowledge is boring blocking and tackling that actually goes to, to 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 building strong readers um so you know so it was um it was i i love the way there was a writer for the new yorker who who described this in a way that i wish i'd come up with this phrase Describe this method as vibes-based literacy, which which is exactly kind of what it is. Um, and 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 you know, needless to say, it was ineffective. You know, and and again, my my school was the lowest scoring school in District Seven twenty years ago, and I think it still is. Last time I looked, um, so the piece and commentary described at long last the New York City school district. You know, one point one million schools, eleven or one point one million students, eleven hundred schools has finally come correct on reading. They threw this all out and they are now imposing, there's that word, imposing uh, one of three um, scientifically sound reading curricula on on their elementary schools. You know, half of them this year, half of them next year. And, and again, two cheers uh, because, um, you know, it's it, it's interesting when, when a school district does exactly what you want them to do, but you still have misgivings about it. And that's kind of where I am right now. It's addition by subtraction. Uh, they have gotten rid of the stuff that doesn't work. 
But again, you've got a whole generation of teachers who've just been steeped in this in this vision of literacy, that it's about engagement. It's about making sure that the books reflect a child's experience. That was what I liked from your commentary piece, too. It's, it mentioned the the important role of, of that kids have in guessing the answer when they're when they're using these methods to try to figure out how to read. I mean, uh, yeah, the, the vibes based literacy. I mean, it also occurred to me that this is sort of, you know, when we want to teach kids to be excited about like ancient Egypt and the pyramids and everything, we can give them all these books but that's not actually teaching them how to understand hieroglyphics. Um, and I right. think that, that that that's sort of what, what's going on here. But but so, you know, what is it going to... So, I mean, obviously there is some training that New York City has said that they're going to do for teachers um, who are adopting this new curriculum. Are you more worried that that training is not going to happen, that it's going to be ineffective, or that teachers are so set in their ways and they're going to be so opposed to this that it's really hard to change, you know, a mid-career professional in the way they do things? Um, yes. <laughs> yes. yes to pretty much all of that um no they, you know, they, I, I don't want to be doctrinaire about this right um but but we have a habit of correcting and overcorrecting uh when it comes to, to 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 teaching um so what i mean by that is okay it it is a great good thing that we are getting serious about reading instruction that we have discovered this evidence base that goes by the name the science of reading and that we are now, um, you know, building or, or or taking it seriously. That's the good news. Okay, now here comes the complicated part. There are, you know, serious people in 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 this world think, okay, now we need to train our teachers in the science of reading. Well, maybe, maybe not. It's not like we're going to teach, you know, children orthography and morphology. And in other words, do I really need to know? Do I need to be a cognitive scientist in order to teach children how to decode? Probably not. Um, but you see, you know, a, a lot of an analysis saying, okay, we need to retrain our, our our teachers in the science of reading. I would argue, I have argued, people disagree with me on this, that look, what you really need to do is train teachers on a reading curriculum, adopt a curriculum, teach them how to implement it well. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't want teachers to know uh, you know, why it works. This is something we talk about in education all the time. You've got to know the why behind your in, in instruction. But if, we, if we're going to hold out hope for the day when every elementary school teacher, not just in the city, but in this country, is expert in the so-called science of reading, that day's not going to come. Um, and, and we don't have the time to waste. So, so, you know, my argument would be, look, let's, you know, New York City is right to, because, you know, this, 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 the, the news of the piece was New York City, the biggest school district in the country, adopting these various curricula. I, I'm not necessarily eager to see them all trained up in the science of reading. I'm eager to see them trained up in this curriculum, the three curricula that they've adopted. Um, let's not make the perfect the enemy of the good. Well, so just on that front, so you mentioned this general ideology of you know, first you learn to read and then you read to learn. And that that had typically been viewed as a sequential process, meaning up through third grade, kids are learning to read. It doesn't really matter what the content is or what the body of knowledge is. They just need to get really excited. And so it's sort yeah. of this content agnostic environment. And then beginning at third grade, you read to learn. You're introducing more substance into the curricula how would you talk to teachers because this is this to me is the crux one of the curricula that you've just identified is core knowledge um mm -hmm. 
which didn't even well, make New York State's list. I know it's quite amazing. But talk a little bit about how we can help teachers understand that the the idea of learning to read and reading to learn isn't sequential. It's actually parallel in that yeah. you, you, you want you. a body of knowledge to actually be part of the process of learning to read. So talk about that, because that, yeah. when I talk to teachers about that, it actually helps this idea of it's not sequential, it's parallel. And we shouldn't be afraid of incorporating into the early grades rich vocabulary, rich content knowledge. Amen. Yeah. No, uh, you and I are kindred souls on this, Ian. In fact, I think the first time we ever met was I was giving a talk to your board at Public Press. <laughs> yes. and, and look, let, let me weave into to the answer to that question, um, what may be the Achilles heel of, of the science of reading movement. Um, you know, th through no through no fault of anybody, um, it is broadly being portrayed as just do phonics. Well, as you just alluded to, Ian, it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, you know, I'm a, a, a unrepentant disciple of of Ed Hirsch Jr., who who you just mentioned, who is you know famously the guy who says you know kids need background knowledge and vocabulary, and 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 he's right. So if if, if you know the phonics is the starting line, getting kids to what we call decoding is the starting line. But you don't become a proficient reader just by being able to decode. You know, good readers have a wealth of background knowledge. They've got a rich vocabulary that helps them, you know, um, solve ambiguities in language, um, understand the context. The, the the simplest example I could give of this, I, I when I give talks about this, I always you know describe the word shot. Okay, now if you're a teacher, this is what you would describe as tier one vocabulary words that kids know when they you know even before they come to school they know the word shot. Well, okay, that word means something very very different. Um, on a basketball court, on a rifle range, in a doctor's office, um, or if the repairman says that your dishwasher is shot. Okay, so so same word, different context, um, and that you know that's that, that's a simple one. But but people, you know, the the thing I always say is, um, literate people, you know, knowledge rich people, like like the the old line about the fish doesn't know that it's in water. Those of us who are you know uh, accomplished and literate. Have, just take for granted uh, that, that we are awash in knowledge and vocabulary. Th this is how you get this phenomenon that I saw every day in my fifth grade classroom, where a kid can successfully read, can, they can decode, and then says something to the effect of, well, I read it, but I didn't get it. Okay. Right. And the way I've, I've described this for years is imagine a piece of text is is like the child's game of Jenga, you know, the, the block game that you play and you pull out the, 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 mm -hmm. the blocks one by one. So imagine that each of those little blocks in that Jenga tower is a vocabulary word or a bit of context, okay? You can pull out a couple, right? And, and it still stands. And then what, what happens? At some point, you pull out one block too many and the entire thing collapses. So that's kind of a metaphor for what it's like to read when you're lacking in the background knowledge or vocabulary that the, the writer or speaker assumes you have. At, at some point, you just get overwhelmed by a few too many missing pieces and all sense and meaning is lost. And that, to your very good point, Ian, is why it's just not enough to get kids to the starting line of decoding. The curriculum in a school has to be over time, particularly for the kids that you and I have taught, right? Low-income kids of color in places like the South Bronx and Harlem, um, you know, who, who may not um, have the benefit of enrichment. Yep. Um, yep. And whatnot, um, or, or you know, uh, parents who speak in full sentences and have rich dinner table conversations, on and on and on. 
you know, the school is the most language and knowledge rich environment that disadvantaged kids have. So you have to pay special attention to ensure that those kids are getting the most knowledge and language rich experience imaginable. And that means a rich curriculum across the grades from one grade to the next. It can't be that vibes based, oh, just let them read whatever they want and they will mirabile dictu become great readers. When you're when you're thinking about, um, I mean, you know, let's take a kid who who now is, you know, they, they've decided to launch this new science of reading. But, you know, you have a kid who's already in fourth or fifth grade. Um, is there anything that you envision that could be done, um, you know, to help kids who have already sort of missed those early um, early years of the science of reading? Is there a curriculum that's appropriate at that age? And, you know, or, or I mean, I, I'm just I'm I'm just thinking like, you know, that there are all these kids who, you know, may have may have just missed this um, miracle that this has come into the school system now. Yeah, no, 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 you're right. And and this is this is where things take a you know slightly darker turn and where I get a little bit pessimistic. Something I always used to say to my fifth graders, you know, is it's it's easier to keep up than catch up. So you're talking about, you know, catching up. Uh and and that's hard to do. Um, you know, um it, it's 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 akin to you've missed, you know, five years, you know, of of, of you you've you've put your money in the mattress for, you know, in, until you're age 10, you know, and now you can still start to gain interest on on what you have then, but you've missed 10 years of earnings and income. So you will never, you know, fully catch up, you know, uh that so you have to be clear-eyed about that. Um look, you know, I, I guess the thing that I tend to um answer uh when when this question comes up is it's it's about the orientation. Um, every school today, you know, this this afternoon uh, at the very latest, can start valorizing what, what what I think of as as the window versus the mirror. So I mean, back to that vibes based literacy thing that we're making fun of, you know, and I think appropriately. And so, what's the what's the drawback there? Well, it's it's all about me. It's all about you know your, the, the child's attention is constantly being focused on their interest, um, their background, etc. There's nothing wrong with that inherently. I mean, you want you know kids to see themselves in in the school curriculum, but fetishizing it uh, on the assumption that it's going to turn a kid into a good reader is where we lead ourselves astray. You know, even the richest curriculum can't possibly account over you know twelve years and times one hundred and eighty days for everything literate people know and assume other literate people know, which is what language proficiency runs on. So what does that mean? It means you've got to valorize, direct kids' attention into the broader world. You've got to make a virtue of, you know, again, the window versus the mirror. You've also got to, I mean, okay, if I was going to do one quick fix, it would be limiting counterintuitively the amount of explicit reading instruction. You know, and I go back again to my school. So when when we were struggling with reading, what did we do? We did a two-hour literacy block. Of um, Then we did math because that was the other tested subject. Then the kids went to lunch and we came back and did another literacy block. Right, but without any specific content for which you're building a base of knowledge, right? Yeah. Like so what's, what's the main you, idea? You want to have ensure that especially disadvantaged kids have the richest possible, you know, experience in science and history and art and music and, you know, all the broad background knowledge that we all take for granted. That's that's something that you can do starting today. Related to that question, you mentioned that you're worried that if there's not kind of an immediate, you know, evidence of the improvement as a result of this, yeah. that people will sort of move on to the next fashion right. or something like Why that. Why do I think that? Because that's what always happens, Naomi. 
And so, you know, so you have like a district of, you know, a million kids in New York, and it's going to be a long time, presumably, before this new instruction that's happened at the beginning is really showing results, I mean, years down the line. Or do you think that that we'll be able to see like by fourth grade reading test or something, significant improvement in- Yeah, well, fourth grade, maybe. I mean, uh, Hirsch, whose name we keep invoking, has, has said for years- you know, that that uh, a reading test is fun- fundamentally a background knowledge test in disguise. And and, and a, but a fourth grade reading test is closer to a pure phonics test because the, the 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 subjects of those tests tend to be fairly common and anodyne. Still, you know, they're they're knowledge driven, um, but but not to the degrees that, say, an eighth grade test w- w- would be. Um, so you're probably um, going to see a bump in fourth grade tests within a, a couple of years. Then, but then what will happen is say, oh, but look, it fades out by eighth grade. So that's, you know, but we always learn the wrong lessons from that. Like for years, uh, you'd think that, oh, it's the eighth grade teacher. You know, that's the, the, that's the problem. As opposed to it's the curriculum that is not knowledge rich. Something, by the way, we glossed over that I wanted to get back to is, you know, the, the science of reading to the degree to which it valorizes phonics. That's a very, very good thing. But the next step is um, understanding that reading comprehension is is not a skill. This is where it really gets complicated, okay? Because decoding phonics, that really is a skill. I, I could put nonsense words. When I give talks about this, I put nonsense words up on the screen and everybody can pronounce them. You know, I say pronounce because they're not real words. In other words, there's a written code that you could look at, you know, at, at made up words and agree on their pronunciation. Okay, the next step is back to, you know, reading to learn, reading comprehension, making sense of text. Well, we we tend to, and this is the real rub, we tend to treat that like a skill as well. You know, that, uh, so, so you know, about why, why does the, the, the Lucy Calkins methods and other, you know, fail? Because they say it doesn't matter what a kid reads, as long as they're engaged by the book, now we're going to teach right. them reading comprehension strategies. Good readers pay attention to what characters say and do. Uh, make inferences. Well, I can make inferences really well about baseball. I'm a big baseball fan. I've been watching it all my life. You know, you say six, four, three, double play, and I know exactly what happened in that game. I, now, but if you if you say six, four, three, double play to somebody who doesn't know baseball, it's like a different language. They can't make an inference about about what happened in that game because they don't know baseball. Um, put put a you know a, a textbook in front of me about you know uh, or or put instructions for say installing you know, a, a new hard drive in my computer and I'm going to read like a ner- not very bright fourth grader. Okay, my lips are going to move as I'm reading that very technical <laughs> document. My, my finger is going to go back and forth over the page. I didn't suddenly become a bad reader. I, you know, my brain didn't fall out of my head. It's just, I can't apply what I've learned about other subjects to reading about an unfamiliar topic. Um, so, you know, reading comprehension skills and strategies that's what reading instruction is 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 driven by in the upper grades is this idea that you know that that understanding a text is like riding a bike you know once i learn how to ride a bike i can ride any bike well it just doesn't work that way you know you can understand texts where you have at least some background knowledge but if you if you're reading about a topic that you have no background knowledge about um it's as if your brain has fallen out of your head yeah so on this point about background knowledge, you know, content-rich curriculum, it seems that an added layer now of complexity is the larger uh, equity agenda, wokeness, uh, where... We're having such a nice you, conversation. <laughs> <you have to. laughs> 
no, but this is the thing. It's like, oh, wait, so what body of knowledge are we actually seeking to build within our students? I mean, there's a yeah. movement across New York City to abandon Shakespeare in yeah. high school. And here at our school, there is a Shakespearean progression. Our kids are going to read Macbeth and the classics, right? How does yeah. that play a role? Because now it seems that, I mean, Edie Hirsch had the courage to not just talk about this idea of background knowledge. He built an actual dictionary, a cultural dictionary of cultural literacy, where he said, this is what every young person needs to know, grade by grade through eighth grade. And it's an amazing document, but it is hugely controversial in some quarters. What do you say to that for the people who are, are down with the science of reading, but are now getting trapped into the argument of what is the knowledge base we're even seeking kids to to understand? Yeah, this is this is where it gets really, really thorny. And and you could write a really good book about education practice with the title "Wrong for All the Right Reasons," um, and and a lot of this stuff falls into uh, the category of what I would describe as you know wrong for all the right reasons. In other words. The very idea that oh look you know um, children should see their experiences and and their cultures reflected in the curriculum yeah absolutely should it be dominated by that well um, there's a price atta attached to that Don Hirsch Edie Hirsch's first book not for nothing was called cultural literacy um, and and his point which I'll try to broadly oversimplify is is that every language uh is kind of dominant has cultural resonance so you know you, you talk about shakespeare well there's an awful lot of common expressions that again literate people know and assume you know too that are taken from shakespeare wild goose chased all that glitters is not gold wear my heart upon my sleeve green-eyed monster the, the, these are all uh phrases and there's you know hundreds of others that were, were, were coined um, by Shakespeare. The Bible, too. Um, our, our language is filled. 30 pieces of silver. Um, an eye for an eye. Greek mythology, Pandora's box, Achilles' heel. All, all of those horrible, dead white, Western canon <laughs> things. Okay? So who wants to be the one to say, oh, kids don't need to know that, okay? Because that's that's Western hegemony. That's that's white male culture. That's white supremacy culture. So we're gonna we're gonna decolonize the curriculum. We're gonna take all those things out. Well, then what happens when those kids leave us and they're sitting for a job interview and somebody you know references Pandora's box, for example, and the person and the, and and the kid says, "I'm sorry, what's that?" This could be the you know the the the, the most diligent, well educated, well educated kid in the world, but suddenly. The person interviewing him, who's holding the key to an opportunity, makes yeah. a mental note like, "Huh, that kid wasn't. I thought that kid was bright. He, can you believe he didn't know that?" In other words, the, the the rest of the world is not prepared to be as as accommodating as as yeah. we might be. Now, now, now that you know that, okay, and I say this all the time when I give talks about this, okay, teacher, now that you know this, you know, now that you know the degree to which our language is just sloppy. With, with assumed knowledge and vocabulary that comes from these sources that you don't like, you got some decisions to make, okay? Yep. Uh, or, or, you know, in other words, are you going to change the world for the child or change the child for the world, okay? Those are both really, really hard things to do. One of them's a lot harder than the other. And, and uh, one is in your job purview and the other one is not. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's right. So, I mean, do I wish there were an easy button that we could press and make, you know, resolve all these conflicts? No, but I think that the, the key to it 
is is a clear-eyed understanding of what language proficiency is, how it works, how it's uh, you know, and and you cannot okay, you want to decolonize the curriculum, fine. You cannot decolonize the language. It is it is a cultural construct. It changes over time, right? Um, you know, American standard English is kind of you know vernacular engine. It's forever borrowing you know uh, I, I, words. You know, uh, bodega, telenovela, etc. You know, we we yeah. are promiscuous borrowing words from other cultures all the time. It changes over time, um, but you can't impose your will on the language. Right. What makes it so frustrating is that you know you go through this ex exercise. You don't expose kids to Shakespeare or all the bodies of knowledge which are just assumed then they don't do well on these tests. And what is implicated? Well, it must be the test. The tests yeah. are culturally biased. The tests are systemically discriminated. And what's the implication for that? Then let's just get rid of the tests. You know, it, it all has this sort of idiotic coherence in the just making wrong decisions as it relates to kids. Last thing, I saw recently an incredible... Uh, AI tutor and uh, sort of infinite patience. And it was a student, a fourth grade student, speaking into the screen certain sentences. Uh, and this this child and and the tutor was responding with the kid's name. And the kid's name is Brooklyn. And you know it was very rewarding and, and pointing out uh, issues. And she kept making a mistake uh, with the silent e. Uh, hmm. and, and, and it was, it was powerful because this child was interacting. And in this case, it was more phonics. It wasn't so much around background knowledge, but there, you could, you could envision an AI tutor. What, uh, being somewhat useful. Yeah. What, what's, are you bullish? Are you excited? Are you hesitant? What, what's the implication of artificial intelligence in this yeah. context? I mean, I, you know, for, for 20 years, honestly, I'll tell myself, I've, I've been, you know, an ed tech skeptic. Um, and, and why I come by it, honestly, because, you know, there, there's any number of, you know, um, uh, products and ideas out there that, that meet the test for, say, you know, um, the shiny new object, you know, old wine, new bottle, that, that kind of thing. Um, and, and ed tech for generations has kind of overpromised and, and underdelivered. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm inherently skeptical about education technology. Um, but I'm wondering, I'm not going to say this definitively, but I'm starting to think it might be time for me to come in from the cold. Uh, and why do I say that? Um, this is not quite where you're going with this, Ian, but I'll give you another dimension to this. You know, I, I've made myself unpopular at times by saying, look, you know, we got to give up this idea that we're going to um, train teachers up to be, you know, saints and superstars. You got 3.7 million American school teachers any number that large implies that these are going to be ordinary men and women. Um, you can't keep asking them to do more, uh, you know, because if you have 3.7 million of anybody doing anything, by definition, they're going to be people of ordinary gifts and talents, not saints and superstars. So, so how do you make the job of teacher, rather than ha ha training them up to do the job we want them to do, how do you make the job doable by the, you know, I invoke Donald Rumsfeld, you know, by the, by the teachers we have, not the teachers we wish we had. Well, suddenly I look at AI and I think, huh, that might be a way to to enhance teacher capacity, not replace teachers, um, but do the kind of you know infinite patience differentiation that we assume every teacher is capable of doing, but we know damn well they can't. Okay, so if AI can do it now, you know that's that's a that's a different thing. Okay, 
if it's really um, adaptable and can really respond in the way that some, and I've seen some of these demonstrations too, seem to suggest that they can, that gives me some hope, okay? That gives me hope um, that the teachers in my old school who were, you know, well-intended, but not always, you know, terrific at their jobs, just have capacities that they didn't have before. Uh, so again, I'm, I'm, I'm not sold. I'm not on the AI bandwagon, um, but I'm, I'm intrigued. Color me intrigued. Mm. See, look, there's optimism there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> not every education conversation has to end on a dismal note. All right. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for joining us today. We're very excited to have you. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I am Ian Rowe. Thank you, Robert. Always Thanks. exceptional. We really enjoyed it. <laughs>